You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children and still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders and under our beds and in our closets. And together we'll realize, well, that's pretty that's dark. That's pretty dark. One year. One year later. <laughs> One whole damn year later, we're still podcasting. I can't believe that we are. And I also <laughs> can't believe that it's like, I just don't know what to think about it. Because on the one hand, it feels like we've been doing this forever. For and then on the other hand, I'm ever. like, oh my God, we have an entire year under our belt. Mm-hmm. We've been podcasting mm-hmm. for a year. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> You're like, that is a fact. I already said it. That's a fact. Not only is it our one year, but it is officially, ladies and gentlemen, theys and thems, you and yours, it is spooky season. It's spooky season. And we're kicking off our five weeks straight of episodes for October. You heard it right, folks. Five weeks of episodes. Which is funny because we've been talking about five weeks, but we just released last week. So really, so technically six weeks. You're getting six in weeks. a row. <laughs> that's too much. That's, that's a lot. That's too that's much. A lot you guys of should. Us. Uh... Not sure how you guys feel about that. Let us know. <laughs> but yeah, we are forgoing our biweekly episode schedule for spooky season in order to maximize our spooky time and bring you as much spooky content as we possibly can for the month of October. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm drinking out of my pumpkin mug. Mm. I'm ready. Oh, I meant to show you this before, but uh. I'm drinking out of. Whoa. Look at that. That's cool. (laughs) I have like a little slim can hugger that's a peace sign, but it's a skeleton hand. It's a skeleton hand. I thought it appropriate for today. That was pretty sick. (laughs) I dig that. I like that a lot. Ignore the fact that there's like a tropical flavored drink in it. (laughs) Skeletons are tropical. They can be, I guess. You know how many uh, pirate skeletons are sunken in ships right now? I'll buy it. I'll, I'll buy that. Man, I wish that was a sweet transition, but it's not. But we are going to talk about <laughs> skeletons because, oh, well, first of all, we should say that this is That's Pretty Dark. Oh, yeah, let's this say This is that. a whole year we've of That's Pretty this, Dark. We've been doing this for a year and we still forget our intro sometimes. For a whole year, my name is Christian. My name is Kaylin. And we're going to hopefully do this for another year and another year and another year. And another year. and another. But we're kicking off this spooky season with a fun series that I've been wanting to do the whole time we've been doing this. And this is a history of Halloween. Mm. He has been talking about this, no lie, for this entire year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. This is highly anticipated by us, even if it's not highly anticipated by you. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully so, because it's the reason for the season. And uh, the history is just as interesting as everything that we do nowadays, because mostly it inspired everything that we do. That's right. So All of the Halloween traditions that you grew up loving in the 90s, mm-hmm. that you carry on now, perhaps even that you carry on and bring your children into, was inspired by the history that Christian is so excited to teach us. <laughs> wow, it's so poignant <laughs> and so beautiful and poetic. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm a poignant and poetic person. I picked up a little book called Trick or Treat. A History of Halloween by Lisa Morton. <laughs> it has little ghosts on the cover. You see it? Yeah. And They're so cute. This is considered the go-to book for all things Halloween history. Wow. And it sets the record straight 
on a lot of uh, misinformation that's been spread around about Halloween uh, for the last, you know, 200 years, something like, well, actually thousands of years, but we'll get into that in a second. Man, can you imagine like being known as having written the authority on modern Halloween? I mean, it'd be pretty cool. The amount of information that's in this book is hard to compete with. So I'm glad she did it. In that I didn't have to. You did it on your own. You just, uh, she helped you organize your thoughts, right? Yeah. Well, I also read a million other articles and watched a bunch of YouTube videos. So Weeks of this, you guys. Weeks. Yeah. But um, she takes all that information and makes it very clear because a lot of it, as we'll find out, is wrong. I really, yeah, I need you to set my record straight and I want to know how I've been doing Halloween wrong. We're not doing it wrong. We're all doing it right. Oh, good. It's just that, the people. That makes me feel much it's better. It's other people who are, <laughs> yeah, we'll figure it out. So not only is Halloween one of the world's oldest days of celebration, it's hands down the most complex and mystifying holiday we have on our calendars today. And that's because of its extraordinarily complicated history that's been misconstrued or exaggerated by scholars, politicians, and religious leaders Mm -hmm. for roughly 2,000 years. Preach. They did. (laughs) Incorrectly. As I'm I'm sure. It was a surprise to no one. (laughs) What originated as a pagan New Year's celebration quickly inspired a Catholic season of commemorating the dead. Over time, this holiday has served as a harvest festival, a romantic night of mystery and thrills for unwed youths. Ooh, I like that one. (laughs) An autumnal. Oh, that's a lot of fun, honestly. I cannot wait to get into that. That's part two. That's next time. Oh, wow. Wow. We're already advertising for part two. That's all my favorite stuff about the Halloween history. An autumnal family tradition. A costumed begging ritual, Mm. an exploration of fear within a controlled environment, and most recently, a good old-fashioned commercialized American product. Oh, yeah. Boom, baby. That's where we are today. (laughs) As I just came from Target, where all of the aisles are. Oh, everything. My God. It was just recommended to me to go to Joanne's to look at their Mm. Halloween stuff. Yes. As we know, I've been to Michael's already. Yeah, Michael's is pretty good. I was at Michael's like the first week of September. But- Halloween is also the most demonized of holidays. Yes. Having been condemned by many people pressing their ugly faces up against the glass, peering in at all the magic and revelry, wondering why they weren't invited to the party. Oh, man. But these are all recurring themes. Halloween has always been and will forever be mysterious and misunderstood and therefore criticized. The reason for this is because Halloween's history has notoriously been written erroneously and spread ignorantly by people who were either more interested in sensationalism than accuracy, or were simply making slanderous attempts to justify their own agendas. Sounds about right. The author of this book, Lisa Morton, says historians, folklorists, and writers have only begun to take the study of Halloween's history seriously over the last three decades. Wow. But this was published in 2012. So let's make that four decades. I'm just thinking back to like the Halloween that I've always known my whole life and where it came from. Mm -hmm. Well, you're going to find out. Mm. Today, we will be adding podcasters to that list of folks taking this history seriously and doing our best to shine our flashlights upon the darkness surrounding this day. That's right. Beginning with those who started it all. The Celts. Of course. Of Everything course. goes back to the Celts. Everything goes back to the Celts. <laughs> also, all the fairy talk and all that old ancient Irish. We've been in that space. Lore, goblins, fairies, we everything. We really have. These past couple months. months. Yeah. 
And this is all where it came from. Wow. This series will explore the history of Halloween through the centuries and see just how it grew into the monster success it became in America today. Mm-hmm. We'll break down the occult beliefs and disturbing rituals and parlor games that have evolved into the customs and traditions we've learned to associate with Halloween. We'll explore the origins of many other Halloween superstitions and reveal the truths behind a few of Halloween's greatest myths and urban legends. Wow, okay. We've got a lot to get into, a lot to unpack. I'm hoping to, to also clear up why... Americans go so hard for Halloween in this series. We're going to kind of touch on that and explain how Halloween influenced the American pop culture that influenced us in the 80s and 90s. We can even go back to like one of our first episodes, our first two episodes, really, because a lot of the programming and culture that we Mm -hmm. were made for us in the 80s and 90s came from this system. Absolutely. Absolutely. It turned it all out, honestly. And all that, yeah, all that plays directly into our childhood nostalgia, our frightful nostalgia. And that's why it, it ends up being used, this holiday being is being used in things like Stranger Things, mm-hmm. uh, all these shows that are trying to be nostalgic for the 80s and 90s. Where do they go immediately? Halloween. Halloween. More and more people today are learning that Halloween is the descendant of an ancient Celtic festival by the name of Samhain. Mm -hmm. Dozens of articles and YouTube videos begin their narration with things like, we bet you don't know the true history of Halloween. (laughs) And it's pretty funny and ironic because we actually know very little about Samhain and the Celts in general. Well, that's a bummer. (laughs) Yeah, it is because they didn't keep written records. Their spiritual leaders, the Druids, barred them from writing down anything relating to their rituals or stories as a culture. That just blows my mind. So it just wasn't part of their tradition. That's hard for me to wrap my head around as like a person of words, you mm-hmm. know, and it writ- written word particularly. Yeah. But we're talking about a culture that existed and thrived in like the BC. Sure. You know, era. Yeah. I've always known that these cultures exist and that the written word is not prioritized for all cultures. Even today, it's not prioritized for everybody. They just didn't pick up the habit that like the Romans and the Greeks were developing of writing things down. Mm-hmm. Also, they were they were opposing. They were at odds sure. for all of their history. So it wasn't like they were learning from each other either. No. You know? Isn't that sad, listener? Isn't that sad when people get so divided that they can't even learn from one another's differences? <laughs> Don't you find that disappointing? It's nothing like today at all. Everybody gets along today. Everybody shares concepts yeah, and ideas. Mm-hmm. And everybody, you know, we all no live in peace and no harmony. Mm-mm. Demonizing. I'm so glad things are different these days. <laughs> Man. <clears throat> Lisa Morton says everything we know about the Celts, their traditions, and their beliefs comes from orally transmitted lore. <laughs> Sounds like an STD. STI. Yeah. Yikes. And scattered archaeological evidence. So... In 1762, let's jump ahead real quick. Oh, wow. Okay. Just a, just a few centuries. 1762. A British man by the name of Charles Valency was sent to Ireland on a surveying mission. Valency was a military engineer, but he was also well-read in history and linguistics, and he thought of himself as a scholar and a writer. Don't we all? Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> Valency had developed an obsession with Ireland's ancient Celts, their lore, and their language. I have a feeling we need to say thank you to this man. Don't get too far ahead of yourselves. Mm, Yikes, okay. He wrote hundreds of pages on the subject and published them among the volumes of his opus, titled Collectinea Doribus Hibernesis, which made its way onto bookshelves all over England. And the only problem is that much of what Valency recorded about the Celts was wrong. He did it wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Damn it. This is where it all started. It always happens. One guy gets something wrong. These are my ancestors, ladies and gents. No, Sorry mine about too. that. <laughs> Ugh. Crazy. Thanks to traditional Celtic folklore text and Irish dictionaries, Samhain had already been clearly translated to mean summer's end. Mm -hmm. But Valency said this was incorrect. Just decided this is wrong. Um, <laughs> I know better about something that is not mine. He claimed that the word Samhain was another name for a Celtic deity named Balsab, which would translate to mean Lord of Death. Oh. Making the Celtic celebration a feast in honor of this god where human sacrifices would be offered up in his name, burning people alive upon the great druidic bonfires. Oh, so Valency just decided that's mm -hmm. what they did. He just decided that it was all but about he, death. he didn't it was, uh, find that that was the case. He just made it up like a story. Right. The word Balsab doesn't appear anywhere else in any of these folklore texts or dictionaries. It just doesn't exist. I don't even, they don't even know where it came from. He just decided. It's based on a British lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we do have to make a couple of things clear. So we do have some reason to believe that the Celts probably did practice human sacrifice, but so did most ancient civilizations. Yeah, I was kind of excited to find out that part wasn't true, but that's I, okay. I mean, we don't know that it is, but we can't say that it isn't. Okay. Almost everybody did at one point or another in history. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make it right, but that does make it harder to criticize one specific culture for doing something that everybody mm -hmm. was doing. Right. And we'll get into it in part three, but modern Halloween urban legends are based off of the quote-unquote fact that Samhain was a part of worshiping this god of death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's like the cornerstone. I, yeah, there's no proof Halloween was ever associated with human sacrifice. So if that's not true, then clearly all the modern urban legends are not true. Wow. But that's for later. Bringing down the hammer. Stick around. In episode one. Mm-hmm. Got to. But if the Celts did practice human sacrifice, it would have had nothing to do with feeding some gluttonous god of death. Lisa Morton says, It would have been done to ensure the fertility of the herds, a fruitful harvest, and victory in battles. As impractical as that is, it, had, it served a practical purpose. Mm -hmm. One person giving themselves up for the greater good of the community as a whole because they believed in their people and their culture. Right. It wasn't... I mean... I mean, yeah. sometimes there were there would have been quote unquote victims. They were all victims. Just some of them were martyrs about it. Right. I mean, she describes they it knew as what they were going into. Like they would have drawn lots in forms of bits of cake, and if your piece had a blackened bottom, you're about to have a blackened bottom. If you know what I'm saying. Oh no. But this could have been voluntary. Like you sign up to draw lots, or you were a criminal. This is some um, Hunger Games shit here. Yeah. Like, there's also some proof that when they were displeased with a specific king of a nation, they would execute the king. So maybe the king was offered up as a sacrifice. Okay. Like, you gods, you were unhappy with him. We didn't have a good enough harvest. So we're going to give you to him. Do what you do with him what so you will. So it wasn't will. always so good to be king. <laughs> oh, no. Mm -mm. No, not always. If ever, honestly. But So although Charles Valency was laughed off and dismissed both during and after his lifetime, his collection of volumes is still considered by scholars as, quoting, being culturally important and as part of the knowledge base of civilization as we know it. That's a quote from Google Books. Even though he made it up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he uh, had a... Okay, checks out. He studied a lot of different cultures. This was just part of it. Yeah, I really so, wonder what his end goal was. Was it that he wanted to be known 
for like figuring it out? I, I think mean, in that time period, it was pretty in vogue to, well, and we'll see other examples of this as we go. It was, it was kind of in vogue to make claims about the Celts in particular, because they were pretty much the foundation of the entire British Isles and everything that happens there. Mm-hmm. I think it was just sort of popular to have hot takes, just like it is today. Mm-hmm. People love to have an opinion about something or claim mm-hmm. something today. That and just you get attention true. for that opinion. You get attention and you get praise. We say on our podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So despite Valency's completely ludicrous claims, his work has been referenced and quoted as actual history concerning the factual timeline of Halloween. And it's been spread around by, you guessed it, Christian groups mm. during the satanic panic, yeah. urging parents not to let their children participate in a holiday associated with worshiping the Lord of Death, a.k.a. the devil mm. himself. I was waiting for our satanic panic moment because as any listener knows, <laughs> mm. this is near and dear to my heart for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah. Growing up in the American South was an interesting endeavor during the early 90s and the satanic panic and also the aftermath of the satanic panic where everybody was trying to like it never ended yeah it it just kind of rolled into new um trends mm-hmm. and fads it stayed and strong I will say, throughout the 90s as much as i've criticized you know my fundamental <laughs> fundamentalist upbringing i was honestly lucky because i was allowed to participate in halloween yeah i'm surprised you were i was one of the very few honestly in the groups that i knew mm-hmm. i was one of the very few that got to Uh, enjoy Halloween. But I think part of that was because the fundamentalism that I grew up in didn't hold it to be truth. It's so strange. They like, they didn't really put stock in the black magic and all these things that a lot of more um, liberal Christian groups would, they, they didn't look at it the same way. A lot of more liberal Christian groups were about the light versus dark and the uh, demons versus the angels and that whole concept and that type of supernatural stuff just wasn't brought into the fundamentalist religions that i was surrounded by as much yeah so interestingly they they equated that more to fiction Hmm. and they didn't treat it like truth like a lot of other you know families groups that i knew you weren't able to read harry potter though I was not allowed to read Harry Potter. So that's really interesting to me that you were able to do Halloween, but not yeah. Harry Potter. Loved Halloween, dressed up every year from the time I was small. You can that's see so pictures strange. on our Instagram. <laughs> I'm glad. But yeah. And also to clarify, liberal Christian groups does not mean like left wing political oh, no, no. agenda. Yeah, it's, it's hard to explain, that but in means... the world that I was in, it was liberal, liberal versus conservative and how liberally you took, right. you know, the Bible. Like all of our Christian groups are technically They're conservative. They're all conservative. <laughs> yeah. None of them were, none of them were socially liberal. I should also note that at all, which is unfortunate. Yeah. I think it's interesting coming at it from that perspective of- Growing up, always being taught that it was all kind of a fairy tale, mm-hmm. whereas I know lots of people that were taught this is the fact, and this is demonic, and this is dark, mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where did you land on that spectrum? Just for Oh, I was reference. able to trick-or-treat. Yeah, my, you did trick-or-treating. Parents, well, my dad wasn't Christian, right? and my mom didn't put much stock in that stuff either. Like she just, people would talk about Harry Potter, like, oh, you let your kids read Harry Potter. Her response was, it's fiction. Right. It's just a book for kids. It's not real. You know? There you go. Um, yeah. So she didn't care. She she would let us, we loved to trick or treat. It was the best part of the year. And I'm so glad because my nephew can still trick or treat. I go with him. I've gone with him almost every year. Which is awesome. Um, but I have cousins who their kids can't 
they can't do it because it's evil. It's satanic. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate. I mean, to each their own. I don't intend to shame anyone. I just, the differences in the upbringing when we're in such close groups is interesting to me. Yeah. It is weird how, yeah, you're so close, but mm-hmm. just down the street, their whole belief system is entirely different from yours. Yeah. It's really, really sure. weird. But just as Charles Valency wasn't the last to make his mark on Halloween's history, he also wasn't the first. The first known details of Celtic life were written down as Roman propaganda in the first century BC by ancient Roman historians and politicians, including, but not limited to, Julius Caesar himself, Ah. as he waged war against the Celts to expand the Roman Empire. So this is where we're going to get really into some high school history. (laughs) It's just temporary. It's just for this first episode. The other two. It's okay, guys. We're all in this together. We can do it. But it's really interesting shit. So yeah. Present. I was always first on the roll. So you're present. I'm not paying attention. (laughs) Doodling in my notebook. Back to class. I was like front row. Trying not to fall asleep. (laughs) I was a terrible student. In history anyway. Not, Mm -mm. Not in everything. Further Celtic stories were eventually written down by Catholic monks seeking to demonize their evil pagan ways, and later written down by Christianized Irish scribes, who do hold a bit more credence because they would have had more reason to balance out the lies and accusations hurled against their own ancestors. Mm -hmm. They had no need to blacken their own history, but they also had no interest in whitewashing it either because they were now Christian. Right. That's where a lot of like... The truth comes out with their mythology and how Sawan means summer's end and not Lord of Death. <laughs> yeah, big <laughs> Those difference. Those are two very different two things. Two very different <laughs> things. One is an excellent Phoebe Bridgers cover song and the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So the Celts were a collection of Indo-European peoples, once spread across most of Europe in nations that were connected by shared language and similar belief systems. So although they were first painted as bloodthirsty, warmongering barbarians by ancient Romans, evidence suggests they were rather cultured. Hmm. They were particularly skilled in mining, metalworking, farming, roadmaking, legal systems, and medicine. Mm -hmm. They were also highly spiritual, and their religion consisted of hundreds of deities, many of which were depicted with three heads or three aspects of some kind putting much significance on the number three. Like the Trinity? Oh, yeah. That's in all these old cultures. Hmm. Number three plays heavily. Oh, weird. Something, something about that. It's kind of... Strange. It's kind of, kind of weird. Uncanny, you might say. Uncanny, you might say. And this may be why many of the forthcoming Halloween fortune-telling games require a task to be performed three times. Just some of that old folklore bleeding into... Like three cards... And tarot or something? Three Maybe that too. Past, present, future? Possibly. Okay. They strongly believed in an afterlife and that souls journey to an other world, sometimes referred to as the land of summer. And they believed that the veil between our world and the other world would grow quite thin on one night of the year. This is Samhain, the grandfather of our modern Halloween. And summer ends. Exactly. So the land of summer. Mm-hmm. Is closer to us as we exit the season. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Oh, yeah. We're so close to death. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, all of us. All the time. As winter approaches, you're closer than ever to death. (laughs) Yes. That's true. And that plays into the whole thing. So on Samhain, 
the souls of the dead were able to return to the land of the living, but they weren't the only ones who could cross over. The Celts believed that vile, malicious spirits could also enter our world for a time to torment the living. These evil spirits were known to the Celts as the Ishi. Sound familiar? It does. In other words, Fae. Here we go. So the origins of all these fairies and goblins and everything that we've talked about for months. All the goblins and ghoulies that aren't quite human. They're just so closely connected to ancient malevolent spirits. It's hard to compare that to like a fairy because we don't think of fairies as spirits. Mm-mm. I mean, we do, but we don't. I and mean, that's where the word sprite comes from. Sure. But mm-hmm. it seems much more physical than just a spirit. Yeah, I would always think of a goblin or a fairy as tangible. Something tangible. Rather than mm-hmm. spiritual. And it's from this deeply rooted occult belief that the sprawling vines of superstition and speculation grew. Over time, these spirits weren't just considered powerful, magical entities, but all manner of ominous, frightening, or mischievous creatures, from omens of death to goblins and phantoms, and eventually to demons and witches. Mm -hmm. Now, Samhain wasn't just a spooky day for no reason. It's believed the Celts had a circular calendar that was essentially split into two main halves, the light part of the year Mm -hmm. and the dark part of the year. Makes sense. The calendar was also quartered from there, designating the halfway points between these two main halves. So each of these four points on their calendar marked what's now known as a fire festival. Not to be confused with the social media nightmare. Not to be confused with that bullshit. (laughs) That guy. The two most prominent fire festivals of the Celts (laughs) were autumn and spring. So Samhain and Beltane. Mm -hmm. Samhain was November 1st. Beltane was May 1st. I've been talking about May Day for a year. You have. You bring it up at every opportunity. With mischief night and everything. So... Of these two, Samhain was the most significant and most celebrated because it marked the Celtic New Year. And the reason this was on November 1st is because that day was the midway point between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice. Nice. So it's very, this is very particular stuff, uh, but I think it's important to kind of tease out and make very clear. So they saw this as the exact period of time where summer dies and winter is born. Mm-hmm. The festival lasted three days because of their belief in the power of the number three. Wow. All these festivals lasted three days. Three days. And it's also important to note here that the Celtic day didn't begin at midnight, as ours does. It began at sundown. Yes. So technically, if you were to lay a modern calendar over the Celtic calendar, you'd notice that the festival of Samhain began at nightfall on October 31st. Ah. Yes. I see it. This is also why their year would begin with the sundown of the earth with winter, right? Because mm-hmm. if their day begins at sundown, so that's probably because their year mm-hmm. began at sundown. So it, it all connects. It's so fascinating to me how so many ancient cultures measure time. Mm-hmm. Just because, again, like talking about written word, but also time. Like these are things that we in our society just take so much for granted. Yeah. And even it's even confusing to us when we go to a different, you know, part of the world and the seasons are different or the, you know, the time zones are different as we've talked about. It it throws everything off because everything that we've ever known from our very limited little tiny human experience mm-hmm. is so grounded in these principles of 
this is what time it is, and this is what time is. <laughs> it's all just stuff that we've invented. <laughs> this is what seasons are. And it gives us structure. It's all, yeah, it's all made up based on how we need to relate to each other. So here's my brief liminality gush. Okay. And I won't <laughs> I, I, I kind of kicked us off into that. So. Yeah, a little bit. So Samhain fits perfectly into our modern concept of liminality, which I feel like is something that the Celts, or at least uh, the Druids, understood. It's in between years. It's in between light and dark. The season of life dies, and the season of death is born. So these inverses are what serve to tug on the fabric of reality in opposite directions, pulling apart the veil between worlds, stitch by stitch, until the portal is opened wide enough for all other worldly entities to cross over. Mm. So Solomon was considered a period between time, a space between worlds, mm -hmm. belonging to neither summer nor winter, neither the living nor the dead, neither the physical nor the spiritual. So that's why it held so much significance for them. Aren't you glad we spent so much time talking about liminality? Right. Because now you just, you're in the, the right <laughs> headspace. <laughs> I'm just so pleased that all of our themes that we've been picking up on, everything's sort of um, coming to a head here mm -hmm. with this episode. It's like it's been building up to something. It's been a year, and here we are. I'm going to just claim right here that we meant to do it this way. It was, yep. it was totally intentional. It was on purpose. We knew the whole exactly time. what we were doing. Yep. <clears throat> we're writing history right here, right now. We are writers on a mission. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Going back to a year ago. We're writers for a mischief night episode. on a mission. In a literal sense, however, Solomon was a time to give thanks to the gods for another year of bountiful harvest, and celebrate the temporary abundance of food and alcohol. It was a New Year's celebration, so yes, it was a big-ass party mm -hmm. with much feasting and drinking. I even read somewhere that although this festival lasted only three days, the drinking would last for like up to six days. That makes sense. <laughs> it just would continue. I thought you were going to say that a lot of people didn't make it to the third day. <laughs> I wouldn't have. Oh my God. I know I wouldn't have. I can't hang. <laughs> it's pretty much like, get up. Keep drinking. I can't do it. Keep going. But this wasn't seen as excessive or gluttonous. It was a way to tell their gods, hey, we like this. We need this. Please give us more. Mm -hmm. A couple articles suggested that to not participate in the festivities would be considered an insult to the gods that would bring bad luck upon your family or the tribe. Wow. And you can't have that. You have to show your thanks by indulging and engaging mm -hmm. in what they've provided. Got to. But this was also an important time for legal and political matters as well. From what I can tell, for at least a very long time, Samhain was an annual gathering held at Tara in Ireland, where the festival was balanced with debt repayment and trials, including the executions of those convicted of particularly severe crimes. And these festivities would be held nearby upon the hill of Clacta, which is now the hill of Ward in County Meath. And you can go visit it today. It's a historical landmark. But before it could begin, before Samhain could begin, everyone had to extinguish their hearth fires at home. Then, collected on the hilltop, the Druids would light a massive bonfire, where it's said they would burn offerings from the crops harvested, as well as the bones of the animals slaughtered for the feast. Many people now suggest this was a bona fide bone fire, <laughs> a literal fire made with bones instead of wood. Wow. Which is where the word bonfire comes from. Thank you for telling me that. <laughs> I had to look into all <laughs> this stuff. After 30 years. Because I've, I've heard about it before, but I never fully understood it. Because it doesn't make sense to me that you'd even be able to light a fire with bones instead of wood. Mm -mm. Um, what I think 
is that a bone fire would simply be a fire that was big enough and hot enough to actually burn bones. Right. Because they don't burn easily. It has to I was be super say, hot. I mean, if I've learned anything from my true crime from documentaries, true crime, right? it's that you really, as a human being committing a crime like that, it's very difficult for you to hide the evidence in terms of burning the bones. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we have practices like cremation. So yep. obviously when you get to a certain temperature, it's possible. Mm -hmm. Not possible, mm -hmm. but, you know, going to happen. So yeah. it's still a process. It's still a whole process. So that's my that's my. So takeaway. the idea was that you needed the fire to be hot enough and intense enough, mm -hmm. which is why a bonfire is such a big like spectacle. Such a huge thing, right? Never gonna look at a seasonal bonfire the same way again. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like it. I think it's fun. <laughs> and they would light this massive bonfire using a method called need fire. Have you heard of this? No. It sounds like something I would have read about in a like a textbook in high school or something. But it's really confusing. I'm still not sure I fully understand it. Need fire, spell it. Need fire. Like K-N- Nope, need. Like you need fire right now. Oh, mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay, no. So this is an old superstitious type of fire by friction practice. Like spinning twigs. See, my, my question is how, how do you light a fire any other way? Yeah, that's if how- If you don't use friction to like strike a, an ember, like a, like a, mm -hmm. a spark. Yeah, friction. You know, with the rocks and the sticks and the stuff. Mm-hmm. How else do you light a fire? Flint. I don't know. They didn't have matches. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm um, no survivor. You know, like I, <laughs> I've i maybe started a fire like twice in my life and it's always been with the assistance of, I don't know, you know, lighter fluid. <laughs> mm -hmm. Matches, lighter fluid. Matches, yeah. But this was a Celtic custom that was still used in Scotland up until about 150 years ago. Hmm. You light a fire by using friction. It's a special way. The, the method is what's special. The it's method not is so what's, much that yeah. it's friction. No, I mean, but it's literally defined as starting a fire by using friction. So every type of fire starter would be a need fire. That's my confusion. I don't know. We've said it before. We're not chemists by any stretch. We're not uh, scientists. And I've read a lot about this, but I still don't get it. <laughs> but it had this magical practice. So I think the Druids were like, oh, it's magic. We're the only ones who can do this. Let us do it. We're the spiritual leaders. I see. I see. And they would do it, but it's just starting a fire out of quote unquote nowhere but it's friction. I mean, if if the layperson didn't know that at the time, then Which they absolutely. They probably and wouldn't, they wouldn't understand. Have. So for that to be a spiritual practice that only the Druids could do, right. you know, it wasn't common knowledge. So that in and of itself makes it different. It had a ritualistic purpose too. So sick livestock would be driven through the smoke to get rid of parasites. And I tried to find out if this would actually work. I don't know, but that's what they would do if you had sick cattle or sheep or whatever. You would start a need fire in your field and you'd walk all your animals through the through the smoke mm -hmm. to purify them. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's supposed to have this magical property to it. I mean, I do think that smoke assists with that, with par with you know, bugs, parasites. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there was sure. some something. It served as a ritualistic fire that said to ward off disease and evil spirits. You ward off disease by warding off mosquitoes and other oh, yeah. unnecessary bugs. Mm-hmm. Insect. The magic would only work if all other fires were extinguished first. So it had to harness all of the fire magic. So everybody had to put out their own personal fires. It's interesting. Before the communal bonfire could be lit. Almost like a <laughs> taking from nature, sort of like a moth to the flame sort of scenario. It needs to be this one need fire mm -hmm. that everything congregates around. All of the evil needs to focus on this one fire. So that we can get rid of all of it at the same time. I suppose so, yeah. Maybe. I'll take it. And at the end of the festival, 
embers or torches or whatever from this communal fire would be distributed to households in exchange for a service fee. (laughs) And these flames would be carried back home to relight their hearths at home. So people would happily pay this tax because this was a powerful symbolic gesture. An article from World History Encyclopedia described this custom as taking personal light and warmth from the communal fire and symbolizing the individual's connection to and reliance upon others. Mm-hmm. Because of this superstition, this old world, this ancient world ritual of using need fire to light a fire of bones symbolized an enduring flame that would ward off sickness, death, and bad luck for the foreseeable future, at least until next year's fire. Hmm. But a lot can happen in a year, so you better get it while you can, folks. Hey, sure can. Yeah. I'm here to tell you. <laughs> Where was my need fire? <laughs> Where's my need I didn't fire? Take, uh, I didn't take any ashes home from the uh, our, our annual winter solstice bonfire. So mm, I know. Probably could have helped me out. Take your little torch home. Yeah. You can hold it out your window in the car <laughs> as you drive. Driving down. You get pulled over for sure. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Another major aspect of the revelries of Sawan involved storytelling, usually involving the recitations of the accounts of their own Celtic folk heroes, overcoming some great obstacles, and encountering powerful gods, evil fairies, monstrous giants, talking corpses, hmm. and shape-shifting entities. Beowulf style. Beowulf style. Ugh, I love Beowulf. <laughs> shape-shifting is a defining aspect of the mythology of the Celts. Many of the traditional Sawan stories involved their mother goddess, the Morrigan, who heroically used her own powers of tricksy transformation to free the Celts from the monstrous race of demonic giants called the Formorians, mm. who once ruled Ireland and enslaved the Celtic people. And this battle was won on Sawan, of course. So a woman saved the day on Sawan. Mm-hmm. Just checking. Oh, yeah. Just wanted to say that one more time for posterity. <laughs> <laughs> So as mentioned, Samhain was a season of liminality, owing in part to it being a celebration of this transformation. Mm -hmm. And as we'll see throughout this series, the transformation didn't stop with the Celts. The festival continued to change and evolve over the next 2,000 years, shifting into many different shapes with many different names and faces, until it became the modern-day celebration of transformation, aka costumes, Mm. that we now enjoy. Who knew? We carried something so ancient. Yeah, right. When we put on our Scooby-Doo costume. (laughs) (laughs) Our Ninja Turtle. Our Ninja Turtles each year. Oh, yeah. Big time. And this is the extent that Lisa Morton goes into the Celts and Samhain in her book. Um, I don't know if that's because this is the extent of our verifiable knowledge or if she just didn't see a point in hashing out all those little details. But regardless, much of what I've learned about the Celts... (laughs) has come from many other sources, like History.com, National Geographic, World History Encyclopedia, and the Library of Congress, <laughs> um, but also like YouTube. YouTube can be <laughs> just as reputable. We'll, we'll see. But if any of these other sources are to be believed, Samhain was an extraordinarily mystical night where just about anything was possible. The Celts hoped to be reunited with their loved ones, but there was always the fear associated with the possibility that one might encounter a malevolent spirit instead. Many sources suggest that the bonfire itself served as a means to both keep away such dark spirits Mm. while also acting as a beacon 
to guide the souls of their loved ones. I like that. And we're getting into more of the like Dia de los Muertos, Hispanic yeah. mm-hmm. uh, gonna, origins of that. the culture. Good. Okay. But there's more to do. I know there's a lot of Catholicism in that. I was going to say that has more to do with Catholicism than the Celts. I don't. The Celts don't mm-hmm. play into. I mean, it's only to the extent that the Celts influenced uh, Catholicism in right. Halloween, which they did. Right. More so than Catholicism influenced the Celts. But that's that's murky. That's part of the history that's really complicated. Mm. It's just complicated. I've always loved the idea of Dia de los Muertos, maybe even more than Halloween, because it feels more sentimental, like you were saying, mm-hmm. or at least as much as Halloween. But of course, I am not, you know, of Hispanic descent. I have no culture that, right. you know, even holds a candle, mm-hmm. <laughs> no pun intended, to that <laughs> type of celebration. But I think it's so beautiful. It is beautiful. And there's a good chance that the Celtic, you know, history was more like that. We just know way more about that Mm -hmm. as a celebration because it's a modern thing. Sure. It's way more, yeah, way more recent in history. And just about every other source other than Lisa Morton's book says that the Celts practiced the first version of wearing costumes. Wow. This is unverifiable. Circa what year, would you say? Circa what year? Anywhere from 1000 BC to... 45 BC. Wow. Like wow. you're That's asking amazing. about you're asking about where this would have come from? Yeah. Wearing the costumes? When costumes would have originated. Oh Just, yeah, it could have easily been 1000 BC. Wow. If it did begin with the Celts. Sure. If it didn't begin with the Celts, uh costumes didn't come out till about 1000 AD. Hmm. Cuz we have that proof. Oh, interesting. Historically. So th- it's still a presumption that it was the Celts, but if not, we know when mm-hmm. we know when we do have recorded right. history around exactly. it. Exactly. And it's funny because sure. they're placing it on the Celts, but the only verifiable history we know the proof uh wasn't it was it's thousands of years removed. Wow. Hundreds. I mean centuries. Reminded me of some some biblical <laughs> concepts. Yeah. I'm in speculation territory now. Yeah. This okay. is all just spooky speculation. Spooky speculation. This is our spooky speculation <laughs> uh, portion of today's episode. Spooky speculation segment. Okay. Segment. There's still some history and I'll, I will clarify what is verifiable and what's unverifiable. Okay. But the yeah, stuff, much appreciated. everything now to do with just the mystical side of this holiday, everything about Solon is speculation. Okay. Beginning with the human sacrifices. So, right. They're claiming that they were the first ones to wear costumes. And if this was done, the costumes would have been made of animal fur or other materials mm-hmm. that they had access to. Perhaps even wearing the head of the animal, mm-hmm. you know, on their own. I'm getting village vibes. The village. The village. Yes. I have thought about Am the village Shyamalan? multiple times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they might also color their faces with the soot and the ash from the communal bonfire, disguising themselves as beasts or even these she, pretending to be the very thing they were most afraid of. This was to keep the spirits from bedeviling them <laughs> or perhaps even kidnapping them. Other sources said that the great bonfire was to encourage the dimming sun not to vanish. Wow. And they would dance around the fire to keep dark spirits away. A lot of this to me just seems like they're taking very cinematic and dramatic Uh I was going to say, I like this too much for it to be just, I don't know. It's very romantic. I was going to say, it feels very idealistic. It's beautiful. Yeah. But I think it's just pure speculation. Yeah. I don't think this happened at all. It'd be nice. It also feels very Native American to me. Dressing up in animal skins and dancing around a bonfire. I was going to say that too. I feel like we're appropriating <laughs> cultures that they were familiar with when they were trying to make this, mm-hmm. you know, historically relevant. I think it's just a copy and paste. Oh, come on, Sort y'all. of situation. <laughs> yeah. Again, because we have no proof that they did this 
at all. Right. Um, but it is beautiful. And again, I think you're right. We like it too much. People want it to be true. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of that. I can see that. In this history. I can definitely see that. Further attempts to appease spirits were leaving out offerings of food and drink on doorsteps. Hey, (laughs) we've talked about that. As well as keeping flames burning in doorways and windows, like both warding off dark spirits while guiding their lost loved ones home. Mm -hmm. Again, this sounds like a medieval British tradition that was Mm -hmm. copied and pasted on the Celts. That would fit nicely. I'll just plug that into the puzzle. In this piece of, you know, media that I'm writing. Yeah. 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 And I think it's people also just like half reading history. They're skimming. They're seeing what they want to see. And then they're making it fit Mm -hmm. without reading that this would have been a 17th or 16th century practice. Wild. Not a first century AD practice, you know? Sure. But it's also hard to say when these practices arose. So who knows? Not me. No one. Not, Not us. No one. Unless you were a Celt. Were you a Celt? Are you a spirit of a Celt listening yeah. to our podcast? Let's have, let's invite our own ancestors to come to hey, our Halloween this let's year. Let's do it. Let's do a bonfire. Sundown. Okay. October 31st. <laughs> Just kidding. We, well, I, I'll be in Salem. You might not be. <laughs> I'm, I would like to be. Massachusetts. Salem. Oh my God. Another common scenario I read about was setting places at feasting tables and leaving chairs empty for the souls of their dearly departed to join them. I've seen And for me, this. that was the most Dia de los Muertos. I was literally about to say that. I've seen this in a Dia de los Muertos kind of context. Yes. Like they have picnics in the graveyards. Mm-hmm. 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 I think this is likely that the Celts did this because they had big feasts. They had big parties. I don't think it's a stretch. They wouldn't want their relative that had passed on to feel bad about that. I mean, we know that they believed that their dead relatives and ancestors would walk the earth on this night. We know that. Mm -hmm. And so I just don't think it's... So far-fetched to think they would invite them to the feast. Right. But this is also distinctly Catholic, too. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to say. At least it's old Catholic. It's not so much now. Yeah. Very different. Modern Catholicism. Oh, it was a different beast back then. Just as powerful, but a bit more wild. No trunk or treats. No trunk or treats for the ancient Celts. Mm -mm. It's also said that the Druids would practice divination on Samhain. Allegedly, one of the ways they would do this was by reading charred bone fragments from the bone fire, like so many tea leaves. Mm -hmm. The presence of otherworldly spirits was believed to give their magic that much more substance, which would in turn give them a much more accurate reading of the winter and the year to come. Hmm. They were a very superstitious people, and favorable prophecies on Samhain would be a great comfort in the coming months. What about unfavorable prophecies? I think that might get your head cut off. Oh, fair enough. But I can't say that because we just don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's speculation. (laughs) See the difference, people? That (laughs) is speculation. These pre-winter prophecies were important because winter has always been associated with death and fear. The night has always been dangerous, and during winter months, there seems to be no shortage of night. There's more night. Nor the dreadful things prowling around under its cover, waiting to catch you alone in the darkness. Winter's scary. Winter is scary. My seasonal depression folks get it. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, I have that too, but I think, like, I would say even something like that, evolutionarily, comes from that distinct dread and fear of Mm -hmm. 
the onset of winter. Absolutely. I would say it's so. Chemical. It's chemical. Our brains chemical. have brought us here. <laughs> Even when the sun is visible, the axis of the earth causes the light to stretch across the horizon at a much steeper angle, sending longer, weaker rays, giving everything a kind of that autumn glow, that orange, golden I do love that, glow. that feeling. I do like it, but if you don't know why the light looks different all of a sudden and it's getting darker, okay, the days scary. are getting shorter. Yep. We live in a very uh, privileged place in terms of knowledge. <laughs> Watching the light fall from the white life of summer through the dimming golden glow of autumn and into the grays of winter must have been an extraordinarily depressing and frightening thing to not understand whatsoever. Woof. And it's no wonder that such mythology and folklore comes from these ancient days where entire civilizations had to wonder what would happen. If the sun went down and never came back up. Wow. As you gradually lose more and more sunlight mm -hmm. and there is no precedent that you have, you know, you're a young adult. Lots of your elders have just died off Yeah. Uh, because your elders were like 40 <laughs> yeah, and right. you're realizing very quickly that you don't know what the end game looks like mm -hmm. because the night swallows up the day for months and months. And I feel that way now in 2022. Mm -hmm. The year of our Lord, 2022, and I still get spooked. <laughs> People still describe depression as like the sun. Goes away. It feels like it will never come out again. Yep. And let's not even get into vitamin D deficiency. <laughs> I mean, come hey, on. Hey, <laughs> hey, I take vitamin D every single day. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Prescription. <laughs> yeah. So not only is winter dark and unpredictable, but illness and starvation were very real threats. So the reason the Celts, along with many other cultures, ended up putting so much emphasis on the harvest season is because the success of their crops decided how much food they had to eat during the winter. For most of human existence, if you went into winter without enough food, you died. Mm -hmm. So this was another way in which Samhain was a liminal period. They were honoring the dead of the past while attempting to divine the future of their own lives. And hoping that they didn't become those dead. Yeah, and that's why they put so much emphasis on death and that beautiful sentiment of... You're not really gone. It's just another plane of existence sure. and you can return back and visit your descendants and your children and your family. Because they needed that because they they were facing death. in the like, They were looking death in the face every day. It's some of the only comfort that they had, right? I get it. It's spooky. I understand. I totally get why they would do that and why they would put so much significance on this time. Mm-hmm. And have a big-ass harvest festival and celebrate the abundance of food, We're right? alive. <laughs> we're alive and we're going to be for at least a little while. But I think also the Druids were probably just highly skilled, and this is total speculation, but I think they were highly skilled in reading weather patterns mm -hmm. and trying to decide how cold the winter was going to be. I think they would see these telltale signs. They were advanced for their time. They had the patterns mm -hmm. to go on. Because mm -hmm. there, I mean, there are those signs. There, there are. Like meteorology is a science, mm -hmm. you know, today that is not exact, but we we know enough to predict certain things. Mm -hmm. And there's even evidence of like it became this period of time where Halloween begins the Christmas season. Mm -hmm. um, like the descendants of the Celtic culture would be reading the weather. You know how they say something like red sky at night, sailor's mm -hmm. delight, red sailor's sky delight. morning, sailor's warning. Yeah. There's things like that. If it was this on Halloween, this by Christmas. Groundhog Day. Yeah, like that kind of stuff. So it's yeah. it's like steeped in ritual and history, but also probably a little bit of superstition and mythology. The magical connection between Halloween and Christmas. Yeah. And all Tim Burton's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, yo. <laughs> We're all just his little misunderstood monsters. That's us. His army of misunderstood monsters. 
Now, it's unclear how many Celts traveled to Tara for the annual gathering, but I'm sure there were plenty who weren't able to travel, whether due to age or physical circumstance. I get it. <laughs> right. You wouldn't travel to Tara. Would, You'd stay home. I sure wouldn't. I would stay my ass at the house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but those left at home, aka you, left at home in their villages would have been terrified at the thought of their own vulnerability. Mm-hmm even though it's temporary. Absolutely. So not only were the denizens of the other world wandering the earth, but it's likely the most able-bodied of your village were traveling to Tara uh, to represent your household at the festival. It's like the draft. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Supposedly, these were the folks who would keep candles burning in windows and leave offerings of food and alcohol on their doorsteps to appease the spirits. Please let our people come home. Yeah, well, please just leave us alone while we're alone and vulnerable. Like, <laughs> And these people would spend increasingly cold nights in dark rooms with no fire, praying to the gods that nothing wicked this way comes. Because mm. remember, the fire was put out because the communal fire at the festival had to be lit, right? The, the need fire. Yeah. So you couldn't have a fire till your person representing your household came home with the new flame. With the new, oh, yikes. So it really was dark and scary. The festival was three days. Mm -hmm. So if they traveled, I mean, Ireland's huge. So if you travel for who knows how many days to go to the festival, add that to traveling there, spending three days, and the travel home. So, I mean, you could wow. spend up to weeks. And hoping that your son didn't drink himself to death around the fire. <laughs> yeah, right? Or doesn't die <laughs> on the way Little old home. women. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure those uh, those logistics were a bit iffy. Like, As all logistics fire... are in that period of history, and it scares me every day to think about. Yeah, like what They're happens if your fire now. goes out? God. What if your fire goes out on the way home? Is that an omen of yeah, death? what do you do? Do you turn around? Yeah. Who do you, do you just like, hey, pal. Hey, buddy. You got a light. Yeah. <laughs> Would you light my candle? Yeah. I don't All know. my rent fans out there. Haha. <laughs> I'm going to get a musical reference into every single one of these episodes. You should. That's my new goal. That's your new goal? For the new podcast year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if it's not Mary-Kate and Ashley. <laughs> oh, Lord. It's a musical. Uh, despite their superstitions, the Celts were a relatively civilized, cultured, and resourceful people. But if the historical writings of other civilizations tell us anything, the Celts were also skilled warriors. They prized courage in the face of fear and bravery during battle. One source told me the Morrigan wasn't just a mother god, but also a warrior goddess, particularly associated with the ferocity and fury of battle. There's nothing like a mad woman, in the words of our Queen Taylor Swift, all hail. Whether or not this particular mythology is accurate, we know the Celts waged many wars in the ancient world, and often won. They were a feared adversary, as ferocious as the Vikings, and as respected as the Romans. In fact, if they'd lived as one nation, not the six separate nations, it's likely the Roman Empire never would have been a thing, and our world would look very different today. It would indeed. <laughs> no Roman Empire. Just the Roman Republic. And there was a brief period, around 400 BC, where the Roman Republic was occupied by a tribe within the Celtic nation of Gaul called the Senones, or the Senones. Hmm. And this just sounds like high school history, but it's very important. I'm listening. This is important I'm stuff. Present. Everybody pay attention. I'm going to slap your desk as I come around the classroom. <laughs> Wake up. Wake up. <laughs> this occupation by the Celts, the Gauls, this was an insult the Romans were never able to forgive. As trivial as these ancient political strifes seem to our spooky pumpkin heads today, hmm. they had a direct result on the establishment and development of Halloween. Because the backlash the Celts endured wouldn't be the last time powerful leaders in Rome got mixed up 
in Celtic affairs. Always doing that. Sticking their noses in other people's business. Oh, yeah. They're good at that. They were good at that. On the full spectrum of the brutality of war, the Celtic occupation of Rome resulted in relatively superficial damages. They took their lunch money, essentially. <laughs> not to minimize- To put this in 90s terms. Not to minimize the soldiers that they slaughtered and the women that they took advantage of. Hey. But there's always those. They were also the first to occupy Rome or the first ones to do it. So this was a humiliating slap in the face of the great and powerful ancient Rome. And it left an embarrassing stain on Roman history. So these Gauls. Had the gall they, to go oh in there. Oh my God. I think I, to Rome. I made that joke to myself. <laughs> I think <laughs> silently one night at like 3 a.m. I've literally given you like five minutes telling myself you were going to make it and you didn't. So I had to go for it. <laughs> <laughs> the Gauls had the gall. <laughs> To invade Rome. Sorry, continue. Please do. It was an embarrassing stain on Roman history. Embarrassing. Because Big old poop that. stain up the back of their pants. Oh and it's because they were scared shitless. <laughs> literally. They were, um, maybe not literally, but they were forced to be reckoned with that they left a long lasting and profound fear in the hearts of the Romans to the point that on a number of different occasions, the Romans performed human sacrifices to protect themselves against the Gauls. Oh. They did this by burying a pair of Gauls alive, despite the fact that, by that time, the Romans didn't usually participate in things like human sacrifice. But they made an exception. They made an exception because they were so afraid wow. of the Gauls returning. I mean, we know fear makes people do... Crazy things. Some wild things. Yeah. So human sacrifice in the Roman Republic... Not to... I'm not here... Uh, apologize for the Roman Republic or anything. Oh, it's not good. None of this is good. <laughs> no. no it's a, there's a reason I'm all this stuff. I'm not a Roman apologist. Yeah, no, this is bad. These are all bad things. But we, you know, through the whole, the lens of history, like. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it wouldn't officially be outlawed until 97 BC. Man. It's a human sacrifice uh, in Rome. Right. But they had all but stopped the practice because they saw it as barbaric. Uh, and rightly so. Yeah, sure. But this only happened because as they started fighting wars against other nations and cultures who did practice human sacrifice, they needed a reason to vilify those people Ugh. and condemn the practice. Right. Therefore, setting themselves up on a pedestal Ugh. to feel more civilized and therefore more superior. And morally superior. Yeah. Because we only kill people in war and we're, you know, we only take advantage of the women that are here with us mm -hmm. in our homes every night. Oh, <laughs> God. I don't do I it to can't. other people's wives, just my own. Right. Which probably still isn't even true oh, for the vast oh. majority of those men. Probably. Big cultural yikes. Big cultural what? Yikes. <laughs> Big yikes. <laughs> That's actually pretty funny. Actually, it was. Our Zoom died in the midst it went of that big sentence. Big cultural bloop. <laughs> oh, man. That was funny. Big cultural yikes. So, this is where things get really interesting between the Romans and the Celts. <laughs> Here is, we are. This is really interesting history, okay? <laughs> I'm proud Telling of you that you're having fun. You're having fun, right, listener? This is fun for We're you. We're all <laughs> pretending to have a great time. Halloween part one. History of Halloween part one. Woo! Spooky Ooh. season. A whole 400 years after the Celts humiliated Rome, when the rule of the Roman Republic was expanding so far it could burst. And did. And Julius Caesar was looking to prove himself. And he did. As a skilled general and boost his political career. And he did. He waged war against the Gauls. He had the Gaul. He had the Gaul to, to wage, wage war wars on the Gauls? Against the Gauls. Wow. In a campaign now known as the Gallic Wars. Hey. Some people are having like PTSD. Gaelic. From learning about this. And Gaelic? Gallic? 
Well, Gallic. Gotcha. Um, so Caesar invaded French, Germanic, and even some British territories yeah. until his eventual success in 52 BC. Okay, this is a lot of dates and a lot of names and a lot of mm -hmm. shit. Will there be a test, I say, as I scribble furious notes? No test. No test? No okay. test. If there is That's a good. test, you can bring your notes. So take notes. Mm -hmm. But here are the facts. A supposed human sacrifice practicing tribe of barbarians invaded and humiliated Rome. Mm -hmm. Then, not so long after, the Romans were so afraid that they sunk to the depths of these barbarians and offered up human sacrifices, which was something the Romans already considered pretty icky. Hmm. Then, instead of blaming themselves for their own actions, the Romans blamed the Celts for making them offer up human sacrifices. Wow. And for that, the Celts needed to pay. This is sounding far too familiar. Sounds familiar, right? We don't like your culture. We're going to take your culture. But then, when we deem your culture is bad, which in this case, human sacrifice is kind of icky, as you said. We don't like it. It's pretty bad. But even still, it's so twisted mm -hmm. to blame someone else for something that you did. Again, I'm just so glad we don't do these things today. Right? I'm glad We're that we We're so evolved. lucky to have evolved past this as a society yeah, in the this. year of our Lord 2022. Mm -hmm. Good thing. Clink our glasses to that. So not only was there this generational hatred for the Gauls and the Celtic culture on the whole, but now Julius Caesar needed Rome on his side as he used up Roman resources in his attempts to defeat these so-called barbarians. He needed to win these wars and prove himself, right? Right. So he and others before him wrote sensational propaganda to aid in his military efforts and gain the support he needed, reminding the people of Rome that these people have had it coming for a long time. Basically saying, these are an evil race of barbarians and they need to be destroyed. Yikes. And we're the ones who are going to do it once and for all. Wow. That's heavy. So if the Celts did not practice human sacrifice, this is when people started to believe that they did. So which hunt now? It's a barbarian hunt. I wouldn't really want to stake my life on any claim based solely on Julius Caesar. Yeah, he wasn't the most upstanding. So, <laughs> you're kidding. Person. But my God, that just blew my mind. Yeah, that's a lot. That's very heavy. That's very, very heavy. And although millions of Celts were either killed, captured, or enslaved by the Romans during the Gallic Wars, Julius Caesar was unable to fully take the British Isles from the Celts. In fact, the remaining Celtic territories wouldn't be taken until 43 AD, a hundred years after Caesar was assassinated on the fateful Ides of March, 44 BC. E2 Brute. So Rome occupied Britain for a little over 400 years before leaving them to their own devices. And many have speculated that Roman culture bled into the Celtic culture during this time. It's not impossible. It's a lot of years. Mm -hmm. It's 400 of those years. Yeah. They could have had some years crossover. Is not a short amount of time. Not a short amount of time. <laughs> it's longer than we've been a country. Country. Oh, yeah. much longer. But a lot of people have speculated that Samhain was actually a combination of two Roman festivals. Hmm. These two festivals are Lemuria and Parentalia. So Lemuria was the Roman festival of the dead. Okay. But you say life. light? Yeah, Lumeria. Talking like Lumos? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean... I just was guessing. I don't know. I don't Etymology. know what this... But it's, yeah, it's a festival of the dead. Not, okay. not light. It's the opposite. Yeah, the opposite. Heard. Like Solon, 
It lasted three nights and the dead could return to the world of the living. So this is a, I'm just going to, let's, okay. This is a Roman festival. Roman. Mm-hmm. Completely. Mm-hmm. And we have documented proof of its origin. Yeah, this existed. And the time period. Yes. Okay. For sure. Huh. So festival of the dead, three nights, the dead could come back and hang out. But this festival was unique from Samhain because not only was it held during the spring, but the dead were considered terrifying spirits that had to be ritually expelled from Roman households at midnight on May 13th. A mass, just get the hell out of here, spirits. Yeah, you don't have to go home. But you can't, you can't stay, stay here. You got to get out of here. Exactly. The other of these festivals was Parentalia. Um, this was a celebration of the spirits of Roman ancestors. Specifically, they celebrated the ninth and final night known as Feralia. This was a night Romans could bring offerings to the tombs of their ancestors, which the Roman poet Ovid said consisted of an arrangement of wreaths, a sprinkling of grain, and a bit of salt. Mm -hmm. Bread soaked in wine and violets scattered about. Mm -hmm. So Samhain is featured heavily in Celtic mythology. So we know for a fact it existed and it was not adapted from these two festivals. Mm-hmm. But it is possible that they influenced Samhain in some way. In this specific time period. In this specific time period, especially if we consider the likelihood of some uh, cultural crossover. Colonization. <laughs> or colonization, mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah, it's not impossible, but it wasn't huh. uh, derived from this. It, it existed before, but our modern interpretation, especially based on the fact that we don't have a lot of concrete history around Samhain, mm-hmm. there's a lot of Roman tradition in here. People just assume. Yeah. They just go, oh, you know what? That's just a Roman thing. Same thing. Because the Romans wrote about theirs. Yep. Those who write history. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So we'll take this one step further. Not only do people think that these two festivals inspired Samhain, they also say there's a third festival that either influence Samhain or ins- help to inspire it and create it. Mm-hmm. This third festival, people say, was called Pomona. And the reason people think this festival existed is thanks to a contemporary of Valency named William Hutchinson. He's credited with claiming in 1776. Hmm. Some other things happened in 1776. <laughs> yeah, a, lot, a lot of things. <laughs> um, he said that the Romans had an autumnal harvest slash fertility festival in honor of Pomona, the goddess of fruit trees, gardens, and orchards. But the reality is the Romans had no festival and celebration of Pomona. Okay. He just said that they did. Because he liked the idea. He liked the idea. Interesting. The reason he would make such a claim is because the mythological tale of Pomona and Vertumnus was very much in vogue in the 18th century, thanks to Alexander Pope's translation of the story of Ovid's Metamorphosis. Ah. And because of the sheer abundance of British Halloween traditions involving apples and nuts, scholars and historians just thought it made too much sense to not be true. And people have wanted this to be (laughs) true. That's a dangerous presumption. (laughs) Right. For over two centuries, this has been considered a fact. Wow. That this this, this real Roman festival of Pomona Mm. is why the Celts ended up applying apple symbolism to Samhain. Oh. Which the apple plays a huge role in Halloween history. Mm-hmm. But we don't know where it came from or why. Well, it came from this myth, right? This this assertion. No. Potentially. It was already part of it before this. Oh, he just, he gave a reason. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This was his reason for it. And people just went, you know what? Apples and nuts have been part of Halloween for a long time. That makes sense. It must be true. Gotcha. Supposedly, Romans are credited with bringing apples to 
the British Isles, which was then advanced by the Normans Mm -hmm. during their British conquest a thousand years later. Mm -hmm. But according to Irish scribes, Celtic folklore is rife with apple symbolism. Their own version of the tree of life was said to grow apples, acorns, and nuts. Mm -hmm. But some people have said that the apples that were native to the British Isles were closer to cherries than actual apples. So who knows? Wow. But there's also the reality that the Celts didn't originate in like England, you know? Mm -hmm. They came from all across Europe. So it's possible that they just had apples and brought apples with them. They cherry picked. (laughs) Hey, yo. Some fruits. I just don't know. You might say. Interesting. It's hard to say. Who knew fruit would play such a part, Mm. play such a vital role in this holiday we love so much? Oh. We all know it from the bobbing for Mm -hmm. apples, the Mm -hmm. candied apples. Snapping for them apples. Snap for the apples, (laughs) if you say so. (laughs) Yeah, another name for Halloween is Snap Apple Night. Oh. Oh, yeah. Snap Apple Night. Yep. Catch me calling it that from now on. There's a lot of speculation as to how all this, you know, this new culture influenced Halloween or Samhain. And I just don't know what's true because we don't know. We weren't there. We weren't there, listener. We weren't there. But now you guys know that it's not so clear. And you also know they shouldn't believe something just because you hear it. It's true. Except unless we say it, then it's 100% true. (laughs) You should definitely believe us as we spend the vast majority of our episodes telling you, don't take our word for it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't take a word for it. Take a word for it. Yeah. Makes sense. It's cool. You guys can trust us. Trust us. <laughs> it's like having to tell somebody that you're a nice person. That generally means you're probably not that nice of a person. Is that what I'm doing Same wrong thing. on my first dates? Yes. Listen, I'm a... Oh, God. Let me I'm, tell I'm you. That guy. is a mistake. I'm a, I'm a nice guy. I'm yeah, a really good yep. guy and I'm trustworthy Instantly and loyal and... No. Instant no. I will never lie to you and... Uh, Don't want to hear that. I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. Yep. If you say you're a good guy, I almost <laughs> just can't believe you on principle. <laughs> Same. They try to convince you of it. It's not probably not true. Exactly. But anyway, I would say that the most likely scenario of Romans affecting Celtic culture at all, mm-hmm. because again, they hated each other. So I don't really see much crossover happening. Yeah. But I would say if anything, I'd say it's likely that the Roman idea of a spirit possessing your home left a mark on the Celtic belief system taking these grandiose mythologies and superstitions and bending them into a much more intimate, personal type of haunting. I buy that theory because we know that some of the best ghost stories ever told have come out of the British Isles. Yeah, we've learned this over the last few weeks, especially. And a lot of what we know about Halloween that we're going to learn in part two next week, uh, some of it's very scary. Like it's just super haunting, Mm -hmm. super dark, more than just pretty dark super dark. (laughs) Not just pretty dark, very dark. And speaking of, you want to hear about some potential spirits that would have or could have been born during this time period? Some uh, Halloween spooks? I want all the Halloween spooks right now. Some Samhain spooks? And always. I want to send some of these to you. Oh, I'm going to read again? I want to read. Oh yeah. You want to read some? Sure. Listener Christian assigns me homework during his episodes. Notice how I'm kind to him and I never do this. I would read anything you sent me. I was about to say. It's not I, I should. It's. I was about to say. It's way. It's actually creative, and I should do more of it. This is classwork. I'm work. being entirely facetious. <laughs> let's see. Let me just. Let's just see if this works. I'm just going to send them to you. I didn't write them out to send to you. It wasn't my goal, so I don't know if it makes any sense. But I mean, I've read your writing before. There you I go. I think I can do it again. There's the first one. I just texted it to you. Okay. 
The puka was a mischievous, shape-shifting creature that could bring either good or bad fortune. They would accept harvest offerings from the field, and many people opted to leave their offerings at the edge of the village since the puka had a bad habit of wandering off with children. (laughs) (laughs) Fun fact, puka inspired the character of Puck for Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. This makes it easy to see how folklore evolves over time from a child-snatching monster to a pesky little sprite. Mm -hmm. I love Midsummer Night's Dream. It's all this old Celtic lore. Absolutely. Shakespeare would have known every bit of it. Mm Mm-hmm. They said that his character Puck revived that Puka uh, mythology. Like it was kind of dying out, but he revived hmm. it. So That's kind of cool. Yeah. Culture likes their fiction. All right, number two. Oh, I'm doing two in a row? I'm just going to give you all these. This is fun. <laughs> this is fun for me. I don't know why. Okay. Use my voice Because you, you enjoy watching me read things that I haven't read before. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of do, actually. You really like it. It's fun. Okay. Anyone walking about or traveling on the night of Samhain might encounter the Lady Gwyn, who was said to be a headless woman, dressed in white, pretending to be a lost soul. If you saw her, she would chase you. She might also be accompanied by a black pig that has no tail. That image to me is so scary. That's very scary. You could just be traveling at night. Also, it says she pretended to be a lost soul. That's like, she is a lost soul. I mean, what is that if not a lost soul? But she knows exactly what she's doing. And she's playing to like she will, the trope of a sad lost soul and then she like or attacks. Or even a, like a lost person. Ugh. Like Help me. You're walking along a dark road. You see Help me. someone Hurry. dressed in white. Exactly. Ew. And they come toward you. And as soon as you get, you get close enough to notice that she has no head, then she lunges toward you and starts to chase you. Ew. That's so scary to me. Yeah, that is very scary. Ooh, I don't know why. It freaks me out no, so much. That's, yeah, no, that gets to me. It kind of has that same vibe of, and this I've told you before, listener, we're just sharing our fears during the Halloween season. Of course, we got to. One spook, one haunt that has always just chilled my spine is anything where you're driving on the road and you see a passenger that needs help. Somebody jumps mm-hmm. out on the road, needs assistance. Yeah. So, you know, a woman usually walking that needs help from you in some way that tries to stop you or get your car. Very scary. That kind of stuff. <laughs> I I have bad intrusive thoughts while driving. I don't remember if I've talked about it here before, but mm-hmm. oh my God, my anxiety is just bad in that space already. Yeah. That's, that's too much me for me. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Yikes. I've imagined many things. And I've actually, real life things have happened while driving. Super scary Ugh. stuff. Yeah, me too. Mm. All right, there's the next one. Okay. This one might sound familiar to you and to some OG listeners. Hey, yeah. Mm-hmm. Others might encounter a Dullahan. They might appear with a wagon or carriage, as we talked about in our Headless Cabbie episode. Yeah. Or they might appear as a headless horseman who carried their own heads. They rode flame-eyed horses, and their appearance was considered a death omen to anyone who encountered them. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, we talked about that a lot during the Headless Cabbie episode, mm-hmm. which I really enjoyed. It was very, I mean, scary. Oh, yeah. Some of the stuff that we talk about on That's Pretty Dark ends up being sort of tongue-in-cheek. But I feel like <laughs> yeah. there's definitely the actual fear embedded mm-hmm. in a lot of it. Okay, another one here? Oh, yeah. Okay. A group of otherworldly hunters known as the Fairy Host might also ride on the Night of Samhain kidnapping anyone they come across and taking their souls back to the other world. Yeah. Like dog catchers. I guess so. Like Halloween dog catchers. <laughs> I, I guess so. Sure. I'm just picturing like, like there's one you Get in him. the back of Exactly. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I see it as more of 101 like a. 101 Dalmatians. Yeah. I see it like a, like a hunting party. Just men, men yeah, on horses with their dogs. Accurate. Like, you hungry know. Hungry hounds. Hungry hounds. Like, you know, hunting you down. 
catch. Yeah. That's why I like all of these play into why you don't want to be caught outside on Samhain or on Halloween. Mm -hmm. This is why you should stay home. This is why it's not mm -hmm. safe to go out. You, hey. Like these are warnings to, to stay inside mm -hmm. on Halloween night. Yeah. Which is super spooky. Something's going to get you. And again, I, I don't know if these were ancient Celtic beliefs that were just given names over time. And now we know how to talk about them in our modern English language. Or if this came about from the Roman influence. Or if this came about uh, in the early, early Middle Ages, like the, the Dark Ages. Mm -hmm. We know this influenced Shakespeare. So somewhere in this thousand year time span, <laughs> these were invented. Right. So I don't know. Yikes. And there's another type of entity it's similar to this fairy host called the like the slog or the slough this apparently means host of the unforgiven dead oh god just super spooky and they're said to just enter your house and steal your soul okay i think it probably just explains people like dying in their sleep or having mm -hmm. an aneurysm or just mm -hmm. things just yeah. dying wow in some inexplicable way getting a hill house vibe there yeah kind of yeah and also mm -hmm. why you might want to Put some food out on the doorstep or light a, Please don't eat a me. candle in the window and keep things from entering, you know, like mm -hmm. don't come in here. No souls in here. <laughs> I saw, I keep seeing a meme, I guess, in bigger cities, maybe like San Francisco, where people are posting like messages in their window of their car when they park it. Like, I just saw that today. Nothing yeah. valuable inside. Yeah. Nothing valuable here. And it's like that immediately clues me into the fact that there probably is something valuable there. <laughs> That would be like these ancient people putting in the window. Yeah, yeah. Like no. No children to steal. No children here. Yep. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all back to history class. We're here. We never left. <laughs> so Rome now ruled Celtic Britain, but they never took Ireland. Neither did the Anglo-Saxons when they showed up a few hundred years later and settled in what is now England. This may be not only one of the reasons why Ireland has always existed apart from the rest of Britain, but also one of the reasons that the Celtic beliefs, folklore, and superstition persisted for such a long time there, well into the establishment of, and the oppression by, the Catholic Church. Yes, because we know that happened. Mm -hmm. That's something we know about. Now, in the 4th century, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, mm. after Emperor Constantine legalized it with the Edict of Milan. Crusades and shit. That came later. But yes. So now, the one true Christian god replaced all of the old pagan Roman gods, turning them all into mere demons of their former selves. Hmm. By the 5th century, the entirety of the British Isles had been Christianized, including Ireland, thanks to missionaries like St. Patrick. But how could Christianity step in and establish itself as the main religion so easily in a Celtic land? Please tell me. I've always wondered, genuinely. There's a very good reason for this. After the Romans occupied Britain, the Druids went into hiding. Mm -hmm. The Welsh island of Mona, which is now Anglesey, became a stronghold for refugee Druids. In 60 AD, the governor of the new province of Britain, a man by the name of Gaius Suetonius Paulinus, marched on Anglesey with an army of legionnaires. The Druids stood on the shores, fearlessly facing the vessels of the approaching army, and after only a brief hesitation, Paulinus gave the command, thus slaughtering the Druids mm. and annihilating their refuge. Oh, so... And since most of the Druids had been systematically murdered, it was all too easy for the Pope to take their place mm -hmm. 300 years later. Wow. Yeah. 
There were none of them left to protest. Well, there were some, but not enough to few, matter. Few. Not enough to influence the Celts in the way that would needed to be influenced to sustain wow. their ancient belief system. Which is colonization yeah, in a nutshell. Exactly. I mean, yeah. kill off the ones you don't like and just keep, mm-hmm. you know, like that's just so. Mm. Yep. Yep. History is ugly. History is ugly. Icky. Is nasty. Not to uh, minimize it, but very icky. Even modern history is. <laughs> the history we're making right now oh, is disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. But as we all know, old habits die hard. And the Celtic descendants were none too eager to give up the old ways of their ancestors. Thankfully. Otherwise, Thankfully. we wouldn't have record of the culture. Exactly. So they continued to observe their new year and celebrate their harvests along with the centuries of belief, sentiment, and nostalgia. Plus, they loved a good party. <laughs> <laughs> they sound like us. I mean, we're not great at parties, but... Oh, yeah. Not the party part, but the other part. The other parts. The nostalgia. I could enjoy a good Celtic celebration. I get into that. We do. (laughs) That's true. As much as we can. But as long as the Celtic traditions and festivities were allowed to continue unchecked, the Catholic Church wouldn't have the absolute power they so very much desired. So the Catholic response, they created what is now known as the Triduum of Death. (laughs) Buzz yelled about that. Yeah? He doesn't like it. And from the super metal season of Holy Remembrance (laughs) is where we eventually get the name Halloween. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, right. In the words of Henry Zabrowski. (laughs) Yeah. Early on, the church realized that conversion from paganism to Christianity was much more successful when they practiced a doctrine called syncretism. Oh, yeah. Which means they provided clear alternatives to pagan ways. I've heard of this. So they would replace the old gods with new saints. Mm-hmm. replace the old festivals with new holy days. It's appropriation in its purest it form, really. Yeah, absolutely. In 609 AD, the church converted the Pantheon in Rome to the service of the Virgin Mary and all the martyrs. The pagan temple was rechristened the Santa Maria Rotunda mm-hmm. on May 13th, which formally marked the final night of Lemuria. Mm-hmm. Now that it was Christianized, May 13th was a holy day for commemorating Christian martyrs. Some sources referred to this as All Martyrs Day. Mm. In the mid-8th century, Pope Gregory III moved this Feast of the Martyrs to November 1st, officially merging Samhain with a church-sanctioned holiday, indicating that this wasn't just a day for remembering martyrs, it was to celebrate all the saints, Uh both known and unknown. And this day was originally referred to as (laughs) Hallamus, <laughs> like Christmas. Of course it was. Which roughly translates to Mass of the Hallows mm-hmm. or All Hallows Day. Mm-hmm. See, the term hallow means holy. And at this time, hallow was commonly used in reference to holy people, a.k.a. saints. Mm-hmm. This is why November 1st is now known as All Saints Day. Yep. Hallamus. Hallamus. I and love Hallamus. Tim Burton's people said. I think, <laughs> I think Hallamus is cool as hell. They would not approve of you saying it's as cool as hell. It's cool as hell. I don't care who uh, who knows it. I think it's cool as hell. But as with all the other uh, early major feasts, such as Easter and Christmas, a vigil would be held the night before Hallamas on October 31st. Mm-hmm. And if we remember from earlier in this episode, the Celtic day begins at sundown, which means there was now a somber Christian vigil on the night that the Samhain festival would usually kick off. And so the Celts, who were used to a three-day-long New Year's celebration with much music, food, drinking, and lively storytelling 
were now expected to spend their beloved Samhain in quiet rooms with their heads bowed in reverence, lighting candles, and remembrance and commemoration of people who had died for a religion that they scarcely believed in. Wow. In fact, Lisa Morton says, there's a famous Irish religious calendar from the 9th century called the Martyrology of Angus the Coldy. Later English translations of this calendar uh, mark November 1st as quoting Stormy All Saints Day. Mm-hmm. But the original Irish text has one simple word written down on November 1st. Samhain. Nice. <laughs> it's great. So in the context of this new religion, the Irish knew that their ancestors were not saints, mm-hmm. right? So they wanted to come together, commemorate their dearly departed. Mm-hmm. But the Catholic Church said, you can't. They're not saints. Right. All that to say, when it came to the Celts, the Catholic mass of the saints just didn't stick. So in around 1000 AD, 1000, 1000 AD. 1000. Around 1000. <laughs> the church added another day of celebration on November 2nd where all the souls of the deceased could be remembered, not just the saints. The saints go first. And And the saints come marching in, and then everybody else. Gotcha. This would give all good Christian folk, including the descendants of the Celts, the opportunity to pray for all the lost souls stuck in purgatory, Mm -hmm. helping them to find their way to heaven. This became known as All Souls Day. Hmm. So now, There was something resembling a three-day celebration that acknowledged the souls of all the deceased from the vigil on Hallowmas Eve through Hallowmas Day to All Souls Day. And this gloomy three-day season of death and ghosts became known as All Hallowtide. (laughs) Then, October 31st became known as All Hallows Even, meaning Eve. Mm -hmm. This name was corrupted and broken down over time to eventually become Halloween. I got it. And that's where we're going to leave off for this week. Whoa. <laughs> Man, we're just getting started with Halloween. Just we got to stop started. already. And next week, we'll see how Halloween evolved throughout the Middle Ages, where the beliefs and traditions surrounding this holiday became even more intertwined with death and the occult. And 90s magic. Well, that's part three. We'll get there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Next week part two and you don't even have to wait all that long listener just a week coming for you just one week much to my personal lack of sleep yes my sleep deprivation let's all Mm -hmm. thank christian (laughs) now you're welcome and his uh sleep schedule for (laughs) (laughs) the education this spooky season there's a lot of history Actually, well, for the rest of the series, it won't be quite as uh, high school history. It won't be quite That's as okay. I like high school history. Shoved down your throats. Personally. I think it's interesting, but it all plays into the creation of this holiday. So we have to talk about the hol- it. holiday that we all love so dearly. Without it, none of the other stuff would make any sense. And if we don't love it, maybe we can learn about it. You know, I guess I shouldn't presume that everyone listening loves Halloween as much as we do, but they don't. They don't have to. <laughs> no, but some folks do. I think all this is super fascinating. Yeah, I've always heard about the Christianizing of the holiday, mm-hmm. but I didn't have the background before that, really. So, yeah, definitely have learned something here. And it's just so funny that people want to demonize it and say it's it's the the devil's holiday. It's just, mm-hmm. people call it the devil's birthday. Yeah, I've heard that um, too. Because they it, that only comes, I think, because of the way that Christians. You yeah, know, that's a satanic panic thing. Yeah, um, but but the way that Christians took Christmas as Christ's birthday. They needed the opposition. Oh, absolutely. Which, I mean, I could go into a whole rant about that too, but... We'll do a Christmas history one day. (laughs) Yeah, we could actually. It's just as pagan, just as old, just as, uh, you know, superstitious. 
Dark. Just as dark. But uh, yeah, there you have it. Part one of Halloween. Wow. Can't wait to get into the other stuff. Happy October, listener. Happy October. Mm. And if you're not listening to this in October, <laughs> thank you for extending the spooky <laughs> yeah. season. Yeah, I'm sorry you can't get your hands on any more pumpkin beer if you're oh, not man. listening in October. Bummer. I'm having one right now. Here, here. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, we'll see you next week with way more Halloween goodness. Mm. And at the end of the month, should we go ahead and tell them what's coming? Sure. Why not? At the end of the month, listener, when we finish this three-part history of Halloween, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come in and hit you guys with a much-anticipated movie night. Yeah, you are. Which is Hocus Pocus. Hocus Pocus! <laughs> we don't tend to tell you about Damn. things too far in advance, but at this point, we feel confident in telling you that this is going to be a really fun October <laughs> for you guys. We're pre- pretty sure it's going to happen, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Since you all just watched Hocus Pocus Part 2. Exactly, yeah. Or whatever, the sequel. Yeah. You guys are living in the future for us right now recording this, so I hope that you enjoyed Hocus Pocus too. Mm, I can't wait to watch it. Mm. If I haven't yet. Get ready to, to hear about all the history behind Hocus Pocus, and the making of, and the production, everything, all that good stuff. You guys are lucky. At the end of this month. I envy you guys. <laughs> we wish we were listening, but alas, <laughs> we're talking. <laughs> I haven't heard of one word you've said this whole time. Mm. Doesn't, well. It doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> Catch you guys next week, you pretty darklings. Yeah, we can't wait. We will see you here. You weirdos. Same time, same place-ish. Y'all she-folk. I feel like that's a compliment. Yeah. Probably. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark, written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone. So until next time, sweet dreams, everyone. <laughs>